Hello and welcome to Simply Why. I am your host, Connor Reed. Simply Why is a podcast brought to you by Indiana Wesleyan University, where we do a deep dive into the stories behind our outcomes. Our guests share the choices that changed their lives, the paths that led them to where they are, and of course, the why at the heart of it all. Our guest today is Henrik Soderstrom. Henrik is an artist, designer, and professor here at Indiana Wesleyan University. He has designed sets and artwork for Yo-Yo Ma, the Idea Museum, the Music of Difference Project, and the Knights Orchestra, to name a few. The rest of his resume would take up the entire episode, so Henrik, we'll just get started. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, well, let's just dig in with the heavy-hitting hard questions right away. Question number one, coffee or tea? <laughs> Lots of coffee. I grew up in a Swedish family, and so coffee was like a mainstay. <laughs> there you go. All right, question number two, drawing or painting? Oh, man. I kind of like the space between them. Some of my favorite painters are, are people who really blur that boundary a little bit. So I, I'm drawn to work that isn't easily categorized. That's a great question, though. <laughs> Contentious. Yeah, yeah. I, I always try to get one that's a little bit tricky in there. <laughs> All right, and question number three, Jeff Koons or Anthony Gormley? <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, I think Anthony Gormley, though, I, I remember being really surprised hearing an interview with Jeff Koons. It was at the Whitney, and I was startled by how genuine he was. That really helped me see his work in a different light. Because I know he's a little bit controversial because he doesn't usually handle his artwork himself. And so there's some people in the art world who's like, no, he's not the artist. Right, it's right. the people that do it. So, <laughs> All right. Well, I just wanted to start off by asking you, how did you get into the art world? Like what? inspired you at what age to really get into that world and stay in that realm of creativity? As far back, honestly, as I can, as I can think, drawing and building things, Lego have been a part of what I've loved most in day-to-day -day experience. I would credit Lego and in huge part to, to kind of how I see structure and systems and spatial relationships still. I find myself especially now that I have kids who also like to play with Lego. I'm just so blown away by how brilliant that toy is. Also drawing, I was into comic books really early on. Someone at some point gave me a um, sort of how to draw animals book. And that book, I, I mean, I wore it out. I think I still have a page from it crumpled up somewhere. But that book it kind of had a huge impact on how I saw line as a thing that, that created an illusion of reality, but also had its own existence. As far back as I can remember, I've wanted to do something with visual art. And the, the one sort of moment of, of swaying was at the tail end of high school, I was applying to art schools. That was the plan through and through was to go to, to, go to art school. I thought I was going to be a painting major. And pretty suddenly, I got this uh, severe tendonitis that was sort of career stopping. It was enough that even holding a pencil or a paintbrush was was not really feasible for long periods of time. So I remember at that time I was in AP Bio and I loved it. So I was starting to think maybe I should just switch careers and go into, into botany or cell biology or something. I was about to kind of withdraw art school applications and wound up in Texas visiting some friends. We were at their church and there was this guest pastor. I, I still to this day don't remember who he was or where he was from, but he was a guest to them, he was about to start teaching and just sort of paused and said, I, I feel like I'm hearing from the Holy Spirit. There's someone here. You work with your hands and you have pain in your wrists or hands. 
if that's you, I want to pray for you after. So just come catch me. So I was just sitting there as a pretty new Christian. I was like stunned. <laughs> what is going on? And so I went up after the service and, and met this guy. I wish I remembered his name. And he prayed for my hands and the tendonitis left. It cleared the way for me to go to art school. Totally amazing miracle. God is so, so amazing. That is absolutely incredible. Oh, my gosh. Well, going a little bit back to some of the fun questions. So did you have a favorite Lego set and a favorite comic book character? Comic book character, I was with the crowds in Wolverine. <laughs> I was totally Marvel. DC was a different, different world. And then Lego, you know, anything, anything castle or pirate. I can't remember the names of the sets, but there was a there was a like a um a black castle that opened in three parts and had hinges. Sort of been like early 90s. So I remember that very vividly. <laughs> That's awesome. Those were always my favorite too. I had somewhere still at my parents' house, probably there's this big Lego castle that's just sitting in an attic or something like that. They're so good. absolutely fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you gotta go find it. <laughs> yes, definitely. So did you have any inspirations, like artists that you looked up to or saw their work and you're like, oh, I really want to do that? Or was it just kind of out of your own imagination, more in the Lego sort of realm? You know, early on, it was, it was really comic books through middle school, high school that kind of kept a drive in me. And then, of course, art teachers in high school. But looking back, I think I was kind of insulated from what capital A art was. In high school, we were really involved in, in still life and, you know, sculpting from observation. So I remember just looking up to my, my teacher, um, Mrs. Fallon. She's a phenomenal painter. And specifically, I remember this watercolor painting that she had in process for at least a year. It was a really complicated portrait. And just seeing the way she was layering the color and sort of building up texture. I still remember that painting. I'm sure it's finished by now. It was years ago. And then when I got to art school, that was really this moment of a whole new world opening up of going to museums and galleries a lot more and learning what, a, what an enormous world there was beyond just rendering. Definitely. Throughout that process of going to art school, were there any other things that really helped you develop your talents? I know that you've done a couple of residencies and your art has been exhibited in many different places. So what kind of got you to that place where you were able to put your art out into the world? A few key moments come to mind. One was early on. This is, so I, I was in Sweden for a year after high school and then came back to school in, in Rhode Island. And I remember when I got back to Rhode Island, I was set on painting. And I had an early experience with a, a painting studio that uh, just kind of steered me in a different direction. And I met a couple of people who were majoring in furniture design. They had this perspective of materials that was really, really life-giving and transformative. It was of materials as being not a means to an end, but a space for dialogue, that any creative process is, is a back and forth with your will and then what the materials want to do or don't want to do. And I think for furniture makers, that just came from this, this reality of, well, gravity and, uh, you know, racking forces across the structure, but also kind of more poetically, any piece of wood that you're working with, it has a will, it changes with the fluctuations in humidity and temperature, and, and the material has a voice. I remember hearing them talk about that. They were, must have been juniors or seniors, and, and then remembering the way that that Mrs. Fallon in high school used to talk about watercolor as this 
material that doesn't behave exactly as you'd want it to, and that that can either be a frustration or you can rename that a possibility, and it's a conversation with the material. That was really transformative, and I remember my first job out of school, I was working in set design for the Silk Road project, and between the story and there were historians working on the, this, the story we were telling, the, the musicians, the composer who was right there in the dress rehearsal, I remember realizing that it was that same posture of how do I listen and respond instead of trying to ideate and impose. Not only is that a better way to get to, to artistry, but also it's way more fun just working responsively, whether you're responding to a material or to the words of another person you're collaborating with. So then, I mean, this is a, an audio format that listeners can't see, and I really hope that they check out your work afterwards, but this is a two-part question. So how would you describe your art? And then also, I know there's a lot of people who, whenever they go to a museum, they see a piece of art and they're like, huh, okay, and like kind of walk away. So then how do you find meaning in art, and how does that impact you as well? So my, my own work, you know, in, in some ways, I, I don't... I have this resistance to being pinned down that's probably just an immaturity. <laughs> also, I, I'm really easily distracted by things. And so I found myself over the years gravitating to lots of different media. Furniture making certainly taught me lots about how to be a painter and sort of what I said, responding to materials, being open to, to unpredictabilities. What's given me life, and the reason that this is a, kind of a tough question is I'm sort of lit up in the process by inputs that are coming in. So if I'm working with a client who's having a museum, a display organized, it's that content that they want to communicate for, say, a natural history museum that prompts me to research. And as I'm learning about something new, that leads me to, well, what materials are needed? What form is needed? What, what's the right context? What scale? And so for me, that's what's most fun. In a funny way, that that has more in common with a design mindset than an art mindset. That generally in, in the studio arts, we're, we're thinking about finding your own path through the world and certainly choosing your inputs. And to me, what's, what's always been more interesting is, is the sort of givenness of a material or of a client or of a prompt. That's what drew me to set design in the first place after graduating. I had majored in French design, and I, I knew that by the time I graduated, I didn't want to go work for Ikea. <laughs> that wasn't the path that I was interested in. But I remember getting into set design and realizing, my goodness, there's, there's music to respond to. There's a story here that I can draw from. There are other people working in this. There's a lighting designer who's, whose concepts are fascinating and whose way of thinking about color is actually inverted from mine. And that was so exciting. And so still, while I do a lot of my own work, it's self-generated, painting, printmaking, drawing. In a lot of ways, that work is, is a way of kind of keeping, keeping possibilities open so that when I encounter the next client-driven project or the next project connected to an organization, I can respond to, to who they are and what they're, what they're after. So as an artist, I think more like a designer, which is probably the fact that I study design. <laughs> and that's really deep in me. As far as meaning, I think that's one of the most interesting and complicated questions that there is in our field. Because meanings, of course, are multiple. And in many ways, of course, they're, they're also driven by the, the human being who's encountering the work, which is what makes it fun. In so many ways, 
language is really good at communicating clearly. If you want to get a message to someone, well, writing or speaking is a great way to, to do that in a concrete way. Of course, there's interpretation. Of course, language is fluid, all that. But it's, it's way clearer in, in a certain sense than visual art. And visual art and design are, are not as clear communicators, but their lack of clarity in that arena makes them more interesting in the field of evoking or providing an experience that can prompt someone to think about something or prompt someone to feel something. So there's intention, but part of what's fun is that whether it's a design outcome or a, or a studio art outcome, you kind of put this thing out into the world and you might have a hypothesis about how it's going to be read or interpreted. But the fun is you sometimes get back feedback that's, that's radically different from what you thought. Or even maybe you make something and then five years later, it's interpreted really differently. One of my favorite examples is a painting by Nicole Eisenman. She's a fabulous painter. She has this painting from, it must be around 26, 15, 14-ish, before the 2016 election. And there's a character and they're wearing a red baseball cap with white text on it. You can't read the white text. But when she painted that image, it just looks like a red baseball cap with white text. After the 2016 election, it definitely looks like a, like a Make America Great Again hat. And so whatever your thoughts are on that hat, it's charged. And so her image, it has this really different life after the election. You know, you can frame that as a, as a problem. But in other ways, it's kind of what makes art and design so, so life-giving and, and wonderful is that unpredictability. Meanings come from, from imagery. They also come from materials. Like if you make a, a bear out of saran wrap, we might associate it with the kitchen. Or if you make a bear out of steel, we might associate it with industry. So the materials carry a lot of content. Scale carries a lot of content. We sort of have all these puzzle pieces that we compile in different ways to, to create the possibility of meaning. Yeah. I remember one of my friends who's an artist, um, she was talking about if, you know, you're a person who say you're not into art or you don't get art, it's like, well, maybe you just haven't seen the right piece yet. Even comparing that to like what we see in media, like in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is a pretty fun, jokey sort of movie. But then like the most serious part, aside from the ending, is this part where they're in the museum and one of the main characters sees this art piece and there's just like this pause in this narrative for a second just for this like intimate connection with it. In Parks and Rec too, there's a scene where one of the main characters who's kind of seen as like a bit of a shallow, just into like the flashy sort of things. And he's trying to get an, a piece of art for some other prophet and then he gets this one piece of art and looks at it and just spends like the entire rest of the episode just looking at it. I can't take my eyes off it like this is the greatest thing I've ever seen <laughs> so like that even within the medium of art itself there are these little points where it's like almost stopping in a narrative to say like hey art is like important and it can like affect you in all sorts of different ways yeah you know it, it reminds me of this scriptural model of Adam and Eve's first prompt or first job, the first thing that God instructs humans with is go name the animals. It's this really peculiar job. And you could take it in one way as, well, it's the, it's the beginning of, of the creation of culture. Someone like Andy Crouch frames it that way, which is totally true. He says culture is what we make of the world in both senses. It's just a brilliant way of framing it. Also, I think there's, there's something in the process of Adam and Eve naming the animals that that helps me to think about the creation of meaning. 
and the discovery of meaning and how it's not necessarily one or the other. We don't make things mean something, nor do we just discover meaning as this sort of self-existent thing. Really, what's miraculous is that God's put us here and allowed us to find find something, like, say, Adam and Eve, finding an animal, like an ostrich, and then whatever they're naming that thing looks like, maybe it's them sort of participating in, the, in, in creation in some way or in, in the making of wholeness. They encounter something existing, and then they add something to it that interprets it. And meaning is this sort of amazing interplay of what was and what could be. And it's like this way that it becomes clear they're made in God's image. God speaks the world into existence. They name things. And language is this vehicle for, for sort of for creating names for things. We encounter a piece of work, and our experience helps to, to name that thing. I feel like even, too, whenever I go to a museum with friends, they, like, look at the painting for, like, a couple seconds, huh, and then look over to see what the name is and then go back. It's, like, almost the whole name thing. It's just fascinating. Yeah. So then, if there's someone listening in today who is an aspiring artist and wants to get into the art world or wants to teach art as well, what would you recommend to them, a piece of advice that you'd give to them or a piece of encouragement as well? I think one of the best things that you can do to develop yourself as an artist or a designer is is to really deeply foster your sense of wonder and curiosity. What I found is that if if wonder and curiosity are there, then they drive you to develop technique. They drive you to discover. They drive you to learn new things. I love art and design in that nothing is really irrelevant to an artist or designer. You could go to school for laser physics. In fact, one of my favorite artists, Enrique Martinez-Celaya, he, he went all the way up to a PhD level in laser physics, dropped out of the PhD program, and became an artist. And he had lots of technical training along the way, but he has found that what laser physics prompted him to see in the world has everything to do with creating art. So art school is great. And also, if you can get yourself to a place where you are interested in learning about all sorts of things and making connections between those things, especially purposefully playful connections, not only is that a wonderful way to live, and I think it's a huge part of what God created us to do is to find connections between things. That's another way of naming. But also, that's the best way that I know to start finding who you are as a creative is to find things exterior to yourself and start threading between them. You know, Well, I think that is a wonderful way to wrap up this episode. Is there anywhere where people can go to find your work or contact you or what's the best place for that? My website's probably the best place, um, soderstrom.studio, S-O-D-E-R-S-T-R-O-M.studio. I'm not really on social media anymore, uh, which has been a really good thing, <laughs> a good change. But yeah, if you're ever in Marion, you're welcome to, to reach out. And I'd love to host anyone in my studio or it's great meeting people face to face and and talking with people over work. Definitely. Well, we'll make sure to put that link in the show notes. Henrik, thanks again for being on the show. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Simply Why is brought to you by Indiana Wesleyan University. IWU is a nationally renowned Christ-centered academic community dedicated to providing leading, innovative education opportunities for students of all ages, backgrounds, and life stages. 
To learn more about IWU's online, on-site, and hybrid programs, visit indwes.edu. And make sure to follow us on social media as well. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day.